Maui Nui is on a mission to help balance axis deer populations for the good of our environment, communities, and food systems on the island of Maui. They've shared over 126,000 pounds of nutrient-dense protein with the Maui community. Secure your spot now. Become a snack subscriber and join in helping to build more resilient food and ecosystems on Maui. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com. And use promo code BEAR for 20% off your first order. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. And she said, have you ever got a second opinion? And uh, I said, no, I've considered it. I, I, at that time, I was trying to get him to cut it off. I could get around and you cut it off. I cut your leg off? Yeah, it was blue. It wasn't getting circulation. It had staff in it, and nobody knew it. And the, the hardware had the bone locked the wrong direction. My foot was pointed straight to the right. In part one of the Donnie Baker story, we heard the firsthand account of the poaching of a 204-inch drop-tine Missouri whitetail on the Fort Leonard Wood military base in central Missouri. In part two, we'll hear the rest of the story about the spring of the coiled jaws of justice, the fines and punishment. I have no doubt that the severity of it will surprise you, but after that, we'll expand our vision to a larger story of the decade following the event. 2009 to 2019 were a downward cascade rife with tragedy for Donnie and his family, unrelated to wildlife crime and punishment. Every headline that involves a human life is easily minimized into a soundbite or a myopic label, absent of context. And don't worry, this isn't a justification of an egregious crime, but a zoom out to a bigger story. Honestly, if this podcast was just about hunting or history, we'd have stopped at episode one when Donnie confessed to the crime. End of story. But as I talked with him and saw his openness regarding his failure, a larger question arose. Why was he so willing to share his story? That was a big question that I had. And I would be surprised at his answer. And I think you will too. I hope this story helps solidify in our hunting culture a deeper respect for wildlife, wild places, and the law. I have zero tolerance for deliberate law-breaking, but this story really isn't about that. It's about the human life behind every headline, and I really doubt that you're going to want to miss this one. We get in my truck on 63 coming from Vichy, driving down the road, and Angela hasn't said a word. We get almost to Vienna, and she just looks over at me and says, I'll give my wedding dress money and marry you on the ball field in Dixon if you'll go back and get that dog. My name is Clay Newcomb, and this is the Bear Grease Podcast, where we'll explore things forgotten but relevant. Search for insight in unlikely places and where we'll tell the story of Americans who live their lives close to the land. Presented by FHF Gear, American-made, purpose-built hunting and fishing gear that's designed to be as rugged as the places we explore. On the last episode of Bear Grease through the rest of the summer, seen him, I think, six times, always in the same place. 
what that deer done. It lived in a little little block of brush behind a uh, dining facility. I'd never seen it in a legal hunting area. And the first time I seen him, I, I was 100% sure he was 200-inch deer, which I'd never seen a wild deer with 200-inch. And still, at that time, wanted to kill this deer right. October 4th of 09, and uh, as I'm driving down Army Street, I look to my left, and, uh, and he's standing right where I've seen him two or three times. And I thought, good grief. So I pulled down to those porta potties, and I thought, right, I thought I could kill that deer right there. So I draw my bow back, and he's still just standing there. I mean, he's looking right at me. I know that if I can fall it into his front end, it, 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 high success rate of killing him. And I, I put that pin right underneath his nose, just right about the top of his white patch, and turn it loose. And like I said, it was just, it was kind of, I don't know if you ever, when you was a kid, shot at a bird on a, on a tree, sitting in a tree or something, just kind of, and then when you do kill it, you think, oh, man. That's kind of what I went through there. And I, immediately I thought, there's no way that I'm going to get away with this. Good evening. The crime was shocking. The verdict dramatic. The trial of O.J. Simpson is over. He is not guilty. Correspondent Bill Whitaker begins our coverage of the day's events. Mr. Simpson, would you please stand and face the jury? In the matter of the people of the state of California versus Orenthal James Simpson, case number BA097211, we, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant Orenthal James Simpson not guilty of the crime of murder in violation of Penal Code Section 187A, a felony upon Nicole Brown Simpson. As a society, we're very interested in the juncture of where crime and punishment meet. We're interested in the delivery of justice, whether extreme or lenient, we're all ears. The O.J. Simpson verdict in 1995 was one of the most watched television clips in American history. And at the end of episode one of the Donnie Baker story, Donnie was in a room on Fort Leonard Wood surrounded by multiple game wardens, a polygraph man, and an expert on determining the time of death who was brought in to analyze a photo of the dead buck that was posted online. In a way, this was the jury who met to deliver Donnie his sentence if he was willing to settle outside of court. We ended episode one with Donnie confessing to killing the buck in a cantonment area, not open to hunting then sneaking the buck off the base in Marys County and falsifying that he'd killed the buck in Pulaski County. We're going to go slightly backward to just before the confession. Let's jump right in with Donnie, and very quickly, we'll hear what the punishment was. Brace yourself. Right out of the gate, Aaron said, I I don't believe you killed that deer anywhere but right here. You know, just straightforward, which... I respect him to be that kind of person. And Casey just, just kept trying. He said, Donnie, you're caught. We got pictures of it on Fort Leonard They knew exactly how many miles it was from where that deer picture was to where I had claimed to have killed that deer. I mean, they, they had enough evidence. There's no way the deer could have traveled that far. No, it had to swim the Gasconade River and yeah. miles. Two, different county. And I thought, I have, I have to stick it. If somebody had been with me or seen me, if a car would have pulled in there and seen me loading or something, I, I, I knew I'd have been... But, I don't think anybody's seen anything other than the blood on that tailgate. And it hadn't come up, so I knew that that was, or figured that that was them. So they write the ticket out. They told me they was going to confiscate the deer, and I would have to plead it in court. Well, going through the gates of Fort Leonard with federal insulation, when you're in question, you're more guilty than until you're proven innocent. It's a privilege to work and hunt out there. It's not, you know, they don't owe you. So they, they said, here's the deal. We know you killed that deer here, and we can tell you you're going to fight. What our ticket will be. It's $114 falsifying telecheck ticket. That means that, that you didn't do anything wrong other than checking it into the wrong county, which means that we, we'll confiscate that deer. But Donnie, you can, you can go to work tomorrow. You can go hunting out here tomorrow. But we know that deer's illegal, and this is the ticket that we're going to give you, and that'll be the end of it. We're not, we don't want to fight this forever. I said, so if I plead guilty to this, it's $114. You're taking the deer. And, and they said, yeah. And I said, I can hunt and fish Fort Leonard Wood tomorrow. Yes. And, and I so I did, and I told them the whole story. The antlers I'd put in, a, in my uncle's house, you know, I'd had some people tell me that they'll st- steal them and everything if people find out where they're at. So knowing that I was going to be out of town, I, 
it's late at night. It's 1030 before I finally got out of there. And they said, all right, go get those antlers. And I said, those are in, my uncle will be in bed. They're in his basement. And I hadn't, he, he didn't know the, <laughs> the real story either. I, I said, I, I'm not going to do anything. They said, listen, if you break those antlers or do something with them, we're going to charge you again for whatever. And Casey said, what time do you want to meet? And we set up a date in the early afternoon. And he said, that's fine. And he told the other agents, he said, if he says he's going to do that, don't, don't worry about it. And uh, Casey showed up, and then he just he took the antlers, and it, I felt like it was a relief other than having to tell all the people in the area that I'd lied to them. Of course, news had already traveled in that day almost as fast as the deer. And of course, the, the stories were just out of control. They told that I'd spotlighted off the roof of the hospital with a rifle, and it was, it was insane, the stuff that was told. But behind the scenes... Somebody took a picture of that deer and put it on the internet, and it was called Mary's County Monster because that's the county that I checked it in. It was actually killed in Pulaski County, before we learned about it. And that, that page had gained a lot of traction, especially since one of the agents put that they'd recovered the deer or what have you. They, they didn't bash me on there. But everybody else in the world did. You know, there was stuff on there saying that I was a prior convicted felon. People claiming to see me have done stuff that i never done, which was a lot of noise around the agents in Fort Leonard Wood. So a week or so went by. I went in one morning when I opened up my email, the lead officer at Fort Leonard Wood, Bill Force, had, had emailed me the night before and said, hey, when, when you get in, email me or call me at this number. Remember Donnie worked on Fort Leonard Wood as the archery pro at the Fort-owned bow shop. So he had to go on to the base every day. So I called him and so he come out there and I don't want to misspeak of, of where the paperwork come from, but I'd paid the $114 fine, which is the finalization, I guess, of admitting the guilt. And as soon as I'd done that, the MPs had barred me from Fort Leonard Wood for life, uh, and my hunting privileges were revoked. And I said, well, Bill, you, you said that I... And he said, well, this hasn't anything to do with the conservation. This is the MPs. So I had through Christmas, my job through Christmas, and it, it's, it's, it's right at November now. And, and truthfully, me being a civilian, they didn't want to see me. They didn't care about a deer. You know, if I'd done something bad enough to get in that much trouble over a deer, good luck pretty well. I talked to multiple people, tried to talk to state representatives, and I wasn't trying to get my hunting privileges back at all. I just wanted to keep the job. It was a phenomenal job. I didn't realize that until I realized it was going to be taken away. So I was contacted by, by somebody in the military and said, you can't lose your job over this because you weren't at work and it didn't put another person's life in danger. So I tried to go that direction, and they said, well, no, you don't have to lose your job. But when the MPs bar you from Fort Leonard Wood, and you can't come to work, then, then, then you do. It's pretty easy to see what happened here as multiple agencies overlapped in jurisdiction. A person could be torn because it sounds like he was misled to get the confession, but you can't justify feeling bad for someone being misled when they themselves were the ones who started the line. He fought the law, and the law won. But it's just interesting to see how it all went down. But what we haven't talked about yet is the giant white mastodon in the room. Mastodons are even more glaring than elephants, and that's the $114 fine. I'm hearing this story for the first time as I'm sitting across from Donnie in his home. I figured he was going to tell me they fined him 20 grand, took away his truck, and put him in jail for 30 days. I had to ask Donnie what he thought about the fine. The punishment that you got being a $114 ticket, that's what the world would see. They wouldn't see that you lost your job and it affected your life and all this stuff down the road. They would see you killed this 200-inch deer and got a $114 ticket and would say that was like massively unjust. I, I, I would agree. Why did you get off so easy in terms of actual fines and jail and all that? Well, I think I got off that easy. I'm sure that if I'd shot it with a gun in bow season or spotlighted it and shot it or anything like that, it would have been completely different. Hmm. But So you think the fact that you killed it with a bow during an open season in the state... Like, there was some factors yeah. that made it... I think that made a huge difference. If you heard of a guy killing a 200-inch deer like that, would you want them to get a bit bigger punishment? Other than a $114 ticket? Oh, if it was somewhere I was hunting, I'd be frustrated as heck. Yeah. yeah. No doubt. I mean, you couldn't say... Yeah, if, if I was hunting a world-class deer and somebody shot it illegally, I would be fit to be tied. 
And yeah. then if they got a $114 ticket and that was it, I really would be mad. This took place 14 years ago, and I'm convinced in modern times the punishment would have been much more severe. In most states today, there is a poacher's trophy fee where larger animals bring higher fines, often charged by the inch of antler. I had someone in law enforcement contact me, completely unconnected from Donnie's case, just a listener, speculating that they really didn't have that much hard evidence against Donnie and wanted to make it easy for him to confess because they might have a difficult time convicting him in court. Hard evidence could be video of a bloody tailgate as Donnie left the base that night or an eyewitness who saw him load the deer in his truck. To my knowledge, the only evidence they had was the picture of the buck on Fort Leonard Wood, but I'm completely speculating. I don't know what evidence they had. And for transparency's sake, I'll let you know that I did contact the Missouri Department of Conservation, hoping to talk with the officers who worked the case, but it just wasn't possible, which I completely respect. I was graciously contacted by a high-level official in the department who answered multiple questions for me and I was very grateful for that. I've always been impressed by the Missouri Department of Conservation. The trend of the hunting world is moving away from culturally glamorizing wildlife violators. I'm not talking about hunting media glamorizing them. That would be rare. I'm talking about behind closed doors, around campfires, and in family circles. I am exposed to a lot of the hunting community in a ton of different places, and I'm amazed in 2024 what my ears hear and how lax people can be towards adherence to the law and how they handle it even in conversations. And those are the things that build culture. And I hope that in no way the work that I'm doing here could be portrayed as such. And I think it would be a stretch to say it was. I'm telling this story because we can learn a lot from it. I'm interested in human stories that overlap wild places. Some are positive, some are negative. I'm interested, too, in the hunting community banding together to preserve wildlife, wild places, and our right to hunt. And this demands strict adherence to the law. I'm also for stricter punishment for wildlife violators, especially repeat offenders. But let's get back into our story. Here's more from Donnie on the aftermath of the confession. And remember... We're getting to the question of, why was Donnie willing to talk to me? And for people, everything you could imagine. I had people come in to work at that time telling me how no good I was. And they hoped that I'd never get back and forth. And then other guys come in and say, man, anybody who shot that deer. You know? So it was all over the place. But I'm still watching this page. And that's what, that, was, that wasn't a good thing for me to do. It started getting me depressed already. And I, I mean, I hadn't even lost my job quite yet, but, but there was a lot of hate out there. I mean, people can really, really say some mean stuff. I'm sure you being what you are, it, it's amazing what people say. Mm-hmm. What did you learn from this? Well, it's, uh, I'll always say, and I said before and I'll say after, I really believe that, that, that hunters are the most greedy group of people there is. If it's a goblin turkey, or a good buck, or just even a, a, a good loaded white oak acorn tree. I learned not to claim, you know, those deer, those those aren't ours. And uh, just to do it, what I learned was, and and what if I didn't kill that deer like that? What if November first that that buck run the doe by me and I killed it right, you know, or anybody else, you know? What if a thirteen year old kid killed that deer with a bow? You know, well, that'd been pretty amazing. Or if nobody killed it, what if that buck bred 15 doe in his life? You know, good high-quality doe, what would be there now? And uh, it was it was a black eye that I still carry today. I mean, you can talk to three people in Fort Leonard right now and somebody tell you some type of story about that deer. You know, the issue is, <laughs> the main issue, is I knew better. But not only did I know better, I, I explained to people that come on Fort Leonard Wood where you can and can't hunt. I knew and almost still do today, I'm, some of that stuff changed, but I knew to the foot of where you were allowed to hunt. There was no excuse about any of that. I, mean, I knew for a fact that that deer not only couldn't be killed there, he was going to have to be a quarter of a mile from there before you could hunt him right. Something about just actually knowing he was a 200-inch deer and just thinking for some reason that that was going to be my rite of passage to be the guy known as a, as a good hunter. So, I mean, I guess that would just be ego, 
Is that right? Yeah, it have to. I mean, that's it'd be the only thing it could be. Yeah, H- had to. Yeah, be me thinking about me, and and not that I was not wanting anybody. Yet. Well, I guess I was. I was worried that somebody else was gonna kill that deer. Yeah, you know, and and that was a rough way to learn something like that. But I'm one of the least jealous people about deer that that I know. You know, I'm today. Proud. Yes, today. At that time, I didn't realize how jealous I was about that until it hit me in the face. You know. Let's just take a minute and let all that settle in. Donnie paid the fine, lost his job, and his reputation was tarnished by the crime. Donnie saying that hunters are the most jealous people on planet Earth hurts me down deep in the gizzard. I view the hunting community through rose-colored glasses sometimes. Not all are jealous, but people can be. It's our job in modern times to change that in our culture. In the last episode, we explored what, as a society, that we expect or demand of people who mess up. And in short, we learned that a sincere apology, rife with remorse, and compelling evidence that the person wouldn't do it again goes a long way. Justifying actions, blame shifting, or lack of humility are sniffed out quickly, like an unseen but potent pheromone. I have another question for Donnie. So in the hunt, you're familiar enough with the hunting community. We've all we've all heard. You've heard stories of guys killing an animal illegally. Yeah. What's the first thing you think when you hear about a guy killing a deer? And and I mean, this goes without saying. I mean, what you did was more than just like it wasn't like a, you messed up and did something on accident. Like this was an egregious thing you made a choice to do. It was blatant. I mean, there was no question. So when you hear a story of such and such a guy killing the deer illegally, what do you think? I I probably look at it a little different than a lot of people. I'm I'm the last one to bash them, I would think. There's always two sides to something. And like the buck that I killed, if I wanted to poach it, I could have killed it many times before that. I'd have been way better off to have went full out illegal and staged a place, prepared myself to kill it illegal instead of it just happening. But... I, I still still despise somebody killing fifteen turkeys in a season. I'm not gonna lie. That makes me mad. Or 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 everybody in, in their household getting a buck tag and them feeling one guy feeling his whole family's deer tax. I'm I'm still hardcore against that and always have been. And I'll I'll be vocal about being against killing a bunch of deer or a bunch of and I got kids that, that like to hunt and nieces and nephews and I, I'm against that hundred percent. But sometimes when when you see where somebody's got a deer removed and they find out that they shot it in National Force with a rifle out the window, most people would say, well, that, that no good, whatever. I, yeah. The first thing I think of was, was he planning? Did he go out there with intent on driving around killing that deer? Or did it walk across the road and he'd hunted six days and hadn't seen anything and jumped and shot it? Do you think, do you think that makes a difference? From what I went, you mean it being illegal? Well... I know because you're you're I see exactly what you're saying is that intent is important or, or, or it's not important. Like if you break the law, you break the law, but intent shows motivation. And and what I'm hearing you say is that you didn't really have an intent to kill this deer. Just a opportunity happened and somehow you crossed that line real quick. Yeah. Knowingly, yeah. though. Yeah. Yeah, Knowingly. yeah. I always look at it thinking that he or she go out there. With, with 100% intent of spotlighting that deer. I feel like that's worse as far as the law is concerned, it isn't. Illegal is illegal. Sometimes we can get excited. Man, it's something we all love. That's why you're here. Uh, we're passionate about, about hunting in the outdoors. And sometimes, sometimes our passion makes us do some stupid stuff. Donnie isn't using legal terminology, but he's right. Intent does matter in the law and sentencing. In the research data, intent is correlated with recidivism, meaning a person who commits a premeditated crime is more likely to do it again as compared to someone who acted on impulse. Now, that doesn't give someone a license or justification to be weak and vulnerable to temptation. You may be able to cheat the law, but you can't cheat the system. Things earned the right way beget the intangible things that comprise our character. I think there's incredible honor in doing the right thing when nobody's watching. 
incredible honor. As a parent, nothing keeps me up at night more than the idea of something happening to my children. But if something happens to me and I'm not around to protect them, that's a true nightmare. Having term life insurance for myself is crucial because I can rest easier knowing my children and loved ones can have some financial support even if I'm not there. That's where Fabric by Gerber Life comes in. Having life insurance just gives me that extra confidence throughout the day knowing that my family will be financially cared for if something bad happened to me. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You can be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash bear. That's meetfabric.com slash bear. M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash bear. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. She'll love looking back on these memories and seeing what you're up to today. Even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep updating mom's frame with new photos, so it's the gift that keeps on giving. And this is not a joke. Juju Nukem has an Aura frame, and we share photos, and they're incredible. Also, my mother-in-law has one. We have them. They truly are really good, really high quality. The Aura frame is easy to set up. It takes just two minutes to set up a frame using the Aura app. It also adjusts the display depending on light levels in the room to maintain the true color of your photos. For real, the digital screen is amazing. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame when you use code BEAR, B-E-A-R, BEAR. That's AuraFrames.com. Use code BEAR at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Whitetail Institute launched the food plot revolution in 1988 with a concentration on research and real-world testing of forage products specifically for whitetail deer. Whitetail Institute's research and development team of agronomy experts provide effective, personalized service. I've been using Imperial Whitetail Clover for a long time in a food plot back behind my house. In 2007, I killed the biggest buck of my life over an Imperial Whitetail Clover small quarter-acre food plot. Imperial Whitetail Clover is the only clover scientifically developed through years of selective breeding. Clover Extreme Genetic Stability provides extreme cold tolerance, disease, and drought tolerance. It really does. Clover is coated with Whitetail Institute's Rain Bond, a polymer coating added for enhanced seedling survivability. They have an exclusive offer for Bear Grease listeners, 15% off Imperial Clover when you use the code BEAR at whitetailinstitute.com. That's whitetailinstitute.com and use code BEAR for 15% off. Now we're going to transition out of crime and punishment. And I'm going to ask the question I've been wanting answered this whole time. Why are you so open to telling the story to the world? Well, a few things. That put a, I skipped a lot. That was pretty financially hard on my family. I had a lot of family step in. And then I've been through way worse than that deer. Um, I thought that was as bad as it could get. That deer having this, this world-class deer taken away. Just thought that I was as down as a person can get. Right. Um, I lost that job. I was known as a as an outlaw. Still am a little bit today. I was surprised by his answer of why he was willing to talk. He'd been through way worse, he said. But I didn't really understand what he meant by that. Life is calibrated by perspective, and perspective comes from our past. What we've lived through helps us respond to difficulty. The rest of his story isn't connected to him killing the deer, at least in any rational or natural pathway. But in Donnie's first correspondence with me, 
He told me his life began to unravel after he killed the buck. But strangely, it seemed that he viewed the unraveling as connected. In a person's life, it's hard to separate out isolated incidents. Events and time congeal into a glob forming a singular journey, a coherent, unparsable, connected scene with incidents linked by cause and effect. If you do this, then this will happen. We feel safe by having a philosophy that garners guaranteed and predictable flow of events if certain rules are followed. However, the older I've gotten, I've learned that this isn't always true. Life often throws wild cards that are not earned by merit. When my wife and I got married, we jokingly said the mission of our marriage was to answer the question of why do bad things happen to good people? It was a joke, but it revealed a deep-held philosophical position of many Americans and probably people across the world. Good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people. It's complex because some things in life do elicit immediate recompense of good or bad fruit that seems just, but other times life seems unfair, either in the direction of the prosperity of the wicked or the punishment of the righteous. It's one of the great mysteries of life. These things are on my mind as I hear the rest of Donnie's story. On December 29, 2009, just two months after his confession, something terrible happened. Here's Donnie. 29th of December, a cousin of mine, Luke Fritchie, and my wife, which she was, she was just my fiance at the time, went rabbit hunting up towards Tipton up in there. We hunted the morning, was on our way back, and, and a guy I know that, that owns a excavator company called and said, hey, are, are you looking for work? And I said, I definitely am right now. I don't know if I'll get back out there, but I need to do something like starting Monday. So I put the dogs up and dropped my wife and, and my cousin Lucas off. I headed to uh, towards that guy's place, which was in Hayden, Missouri. And, and uh, I hit a slick spot right past MM Highway on 28. Wasn't running very fast. We're driving an old Jeep and lost it. Well, it, it run off in the gravel. And uh, about the time I got it straightened up, I hit an oak tree head on. Probably running 45 mile an hour, not didn't slow down any. And when I hit that tree, just the ringing in the car and the steam rolling, I thought, good grief. At first, zero pain. And I still had my overalls and, and hunting boots and stuff on. And it was the actual hood light from the hood being smashed in had come on and the steam rolling from the radiator. And I thought that thing was catching on fire. It looked like flames. So I started to get out of it. When I stepped out on the ground, I just fell in the snow. And I had a accordion fractured my femur, or butterfly broke, a big chunk of it in the middle come out. And it was, it was way off to the side of me in those overalls. And, and I grabbed that leg and slid it back over straight. But it, I didn't feel the pain at all. Am, ambulance gets there, and the first thing they did was go to cut these new overalls off of me. And I said, don't cut them overalls. So I fought with them for a while. When they went to try to take them off, I said, no, go ahead and cut them. Mm. So they trimmed all, all my, my overalls and my boots and stuff off of me. They rushed me to Rolla. I lost nine units of that. I guess that bone had cut a major artery in there. I passed out multiple times going to the hospital. They, they tied something on the end of my foot to keep that bone from cutting, moving, cutting around there. Hmm. So it was almost like a kettlebell tied on the end of your toes. Well, that, that was the most pain I've ever felt in my life. Go around a corner, that thing would swing to one side, then the other. And I mean, I'd wake back up. I was passing out. So when we get there, it was emergency surgery. And they go in, and I guess it was more dangerous than I realized. I was just thinking it was a broke leg. Anyway, they set that bone back, and it, it didn't set right. That started a whole new battle. Hmm. It took 13 surgeries to get that thing back right, with tearing ACL, redoing the meniscus, and all, all my tendons in my knee have been busted a time or two. How long is this after you were convicted of killing this deer? Right at the first of November is when I was. So this is just convicted. weeks after. Yeah, you killed this deer. You had this yeah. terrible car wreck. Yeah. So I'm I'm getting pretty down and out by now, and here I am in a wheelchair now. Can't walk. Every time I get a, a minute alone, I open up that stupid web page, and read about how terrible a person I am, and uh, it got me in a dark spot. It did. I had good family around me. You know, most of them forgave me, coming in checking on me and what have you. But it was mentally a very very tough time. Uh, I, one guy wrote on there that when they put that I'd been an I mean they were, they were putting my life on this on this web page of 
Mary's County monster. Couple, one, one guy on there said he, he gets everything he deserves. And, you know, was, and, and those guys, some of them, some of them I knew who they were, but some of them didn't know me. They are just, just aggravated at me for killing this deer that they probably had a chance of killing if they were watching, you know. That deer got a lot of traction. You know, if it had been a 110-inch eight-point, well, I wouldn't have done that, but, but it wouldn't have got that traction. Everybody in the state was talking about that deer and other states. One of my nurses in Columbia knew who I was, said her kid had a picture of me and that deer, you know. And then she didn't know the rest of the story I told her. I had family bring, we, we had only wood heat in that house. And I had, I had multiple family members bringing loads of wood. You know, I couldn't cut or anything. And my, my dad was trying to work in his old shop. It was the coldest winter we'd had in a long time. And it was just, it just getting me down. I mean, it really was. And uh, about six months in, I got MRSA infection in that bone and all kinds of issues. And that doctor told me, he said, uh, probably never walk again without an aid. Mm. And I was like, this is a broken leg. People break their legs every day, huh? And, and it was actually set wrong. And uh, just by coincidence, uh, August 7th, uh, we had a, a softball tournament. And a, a guy I went to school with, wife comes walking up to me. I didn't know her. Her name's Kelly Alexander. And she said, how long have you been fighting that leg? And I told her, it's been over a year. And she said, have you ever got a second opinion? And uh, I said, no, I've considered it. I, I, at that time, I was trying to get him cut it off. I could get around and you cut it off. I cut your it, leg off? Yeah, it was blue. It wasn't getting circulation. It had staph in it, and nobody knew it. And the, the hardware had the bone locked the wrong direction. My foot was pointed straight to the right. Mm. And uh, and she said, well, I, I work for a doctor in Columbia Orthopedics. And she said, I, I would love if you'd come have him look at that leg. And like the following Monday, she had me an appointment. Very hard doctor to get into. And I mean, he's a super intelligent guy. And uh, I brought my paperwork with me. Was leaned up against crutches, standing there because it hurt bad to sit down and ride anywhere. And I'll never forget they done a few X-rays and went out. And he come back in. He said, "Sit down." I said, "Oh, I feel better." And he said, "No, I need you to sit down. That bone's not even touching." And he said, "We're gonna have surgery this afternoon." And he started re- redoing the leg. I mean, I, I play a little ball now. I can hunt as hard as I want to. And, he fixed you. He did. Yeah, just just blessing of you know this girl I didn't even really know, Kelly Alexander, just just said. I know where a good doctor is, you know. Hmm. And I'm not blaming the first doctor. I, I think I was bleeding out when they put it together. I'm sure it was a chaotic spot. Yeah. It just yeah. just how it goes. But but then when I got back on my feet, that, that started the having to go start apologizing to people. And that was almost as hard as lying to them, knowing that you'd done wrong and having to face them, you know. It's hard to imagine in middle America in modern times that fixing a broken leg could go so wrong. Did you hear him say that he was trying to get them to cut his leg off? A dark cloud seemed to descend over Donnie's life. He became depressed. Times were hard. It's wild that the boldness and concern of a stranger at a ball game would change Donnie's life. As this lady helped him get an appointment with the doctor that fixed him, the very afternoon of the appointment. But this was just the beginning. This next section will introduce us to a name we've heard a few times, Angela, who was at the time Donnie's fiance. This next story does a great job of painting a picture of their relationship. But don't forget that dark cloud. While I was crippled up, we've raised field trial beagles for a long time, UKC beagles. And we've had a couple good ones. My wife and I were planning on getting married in August. And uh, she'd saved up money for a dress. And I mean, like, we were rubbing pennies, raising two boys. It was tough. And uh, she'd saved money for a year for a dress. And we had pretty well everything picked up. Of course, I wasn't helping at all. I'm sitting in a chair with my, with my leg all wrapped up. I'm 130 pounds. I was 210 pounds, pretty big guy when I had this accident. She had to carry me to the bathtub. And back out. I mean, it was it was just like taking care of a feeble old man. And uh, Angela and my dad were still running kind of in the points series of these UKC hunts. We were going. And I would show a dog once in a while, but me and the boys would stay in the clubhouse and hang out. We were at a, a hunt down south, and Angela come walking in. She said, did, did you see this dog tied up out here? And I said, no. And she said, come look at this dog. So I'd get up and cripple out there. And it was the prettiest beagle I've ever seen. 
big old bold muscle that I mean had more muscle than anybody I've ever seen in my life. And she said, I, I want that dog. I said, well, we can't afford that dog. There's no telling it. So when he gets in, she makes him go out there and show her the dog and they talk about it. My wife was crazy over beagles. Some people, I've, I've heard more than one person say, when I die, I want to come back as one of Angela Becker's beagles. I mean, you know, they got dessert and everything. So she told him we were interested in getting that dog. And I had an idea what that dog would cost, and, and we couldn't afford it. No way. A month or so goes by, and he calls me at my house. He goes, hey, I'm thinking about selling that dog. So we went over there Sunday evening. He had a little side-by-side. He got me in. We went out. And he cut. I, tur- I brought a couple dogs with me, and he cut them out. And there was nothing the dog done that was wrong. It had a, a huge mouth. It sounded like a person screaming, what, when he ran, which is kind of something you want to be able to strike your dog. If it's a good dog, you want it to be distinct from the other one so other people can't strike their dog on yours. Mm-hmm. We ran for a couple hours, and we get back and load everything up, getting ready to leave, and he priced the dog, and I thought, good grief. So we get in my truck on 63 coming from Vichy, driving down the road, and Angela hasn't said a word. So we get almost to Vienna, and she just looks over at me and says, I'll give my wedding dress money and marry you on the ball field in Dixon if you'll go back and get that dog. I about turned that truck over, turned around 63, went back and bought the dog. And uh, he was a huge blessing, just that himself. So she won nationals a couple times with him, multiple state hunts and shows. Just We just lost him last year. He was uh, 15 years old. That dog brought us really close. Compared, you know, when we were young, you know, had, had a couple boys. Everything was fine. We loved to hunt and fish. But that dog gave us something to do big time together. So after him, we ended up purchasing another pup that turned out to be amazing and at one time we had the, the top two dogs in this area points and hunt wise field trial is what she loved she loves competition we played a lot of softball together she just you could field trial with the boys take them with you we ohio indiana all over that was something that that was such a blessing to us so like i said i thought that that really beat me down so with, with the field trialing, Angela and I done everything together. I still bow hunted a lot, done things like that. But uh, we ran dogs two or three days a week and every weekend for a few years. And then in May, May of 2011, we were building this running pen up here. And, and my dad got to having pain. And he had a massive heart attack. Uh, right above the Widowmaker, his heart still works today, at just over 30%. So... Already that deer, the issues of that deer didn't didn't mean as much. But in at the end of 2015, Angela started having issues with her stomach and not feeling good, losing weight. And in March of 16, she was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. And, uh, but honestly, I mean, it was scary. If you knew her, you'd understand. She was in the middle of CrossFit. They were trying to get her to compete at the time. Strong. Not not female strong, strong as, as anybody her size. Tough as she could be. I mean, she packed water buckets with me. I mean, we, we were just like two buddies, really. That's what that's what made us close. She could be, and she was a beautiful person, but but she could wear Carhartt jeans and stomp brush piles just like anybody. And, uh, which is probably what attracted me to her the most. You know, she played on my men's softball team. You know, just, but in 16, 2016, they gave her 18 months to live with treatment. 12 to 18 months and honestly it was scary but it didn't it just she just wanted them I thought man if he might be to be her and uh she took yeah she took 20 chemo treatments and 48 radiation treatments Angela's stage 4 cancer came as a complete surprise the dark cloud had materialized overhead again only in her late 20s She was a beautiful lady, the picture of health and fitness. It's hard to imagine the shock of such a diagnosis. After she received the maximum amount of radiation and chemotherapy treatments, the doctors sent her home saying there was nothing more they could do and gave her 12 to 18 months to live. At this point, Donnie and Angela began to research non-traditional methods of cancer treatment. I struggled from an editorial perspective whether to include this as it's just really personal. But in the end, it's Donnie and his family's story that's part of their journey through this dark decade from 2009 to 2019 
And Donnie included this in his story. So I did in this one too. So she found a show called Cancer Can Be Killed, and it was about about natural, you know, and, and not, it was actually explained not to blame the doctors. That's Western medicine, how they're taught. But cancer goes, United States goes around because of cancer, all the way to our newspapers and everything, all trickle down money from cancer treatment. And uh, so we went to Florida. Uh, she went to Florida for six weeks. We didn't tell her doctor because he said, if you go, don't don't come back here because by the time you get back, it'll be out of control. And he's a good dude. I'm not. I'm not saying, but but he really believed it would be. And uh, we went to to. She went to Florida for six weeks. My sister set up um, itinerary for her. Uh, every like five days. She would have some family member fly down there to hang out with her for three or four days and come back. Uh, flew the boys and myself down there, and I could tell when I got there, Clay. It was like on week four, I believe. We hadn't seen her for a month. Of course, the boys were excited to see their mom. Um, she had just settled into this place like she'd lived there her whole life, knew all the side streets, and we went to the beach. But she was laughing, running, playing with the kids. I could tell something was, was different. And when we got back, when she got back after six weeks of that, she was cancer-free. I mean, well, I take that we didn't tell him. They went in to do her bi-monthly CAT scan, and the last time she had hot spots all in her bone and everything, and it spread. And, of course, she'd lived a long time after they said that she would. And uh, when they got done with the CAT scan, they come in and they said, well, something's not right, we're going to have to do that again. And she said, how come? He said, I, I, it, just, it didn't show anything. So they took her back in, CAT scanned her again. And uh, when they come back out, he, he said, whatever you're doing, continue on it. And, and she was cancer-free. It was a very strict diet. She could eat like three things, zero sugar ever again. Um, and it was hard to do. You know, I mean, not... Couldn't eat anything on the road. Had to pack your meals for everything. And it was almost unfeasible. Well, it was. It was. And then heat tank every day. You got to get your body core up to, I think, over 103 degrees. Cancer can't live. You know, it's, it's so high. And, and it was just... And she, she stayed on track with that for, for a long time. Angela would stay cancer-free for just under one year. And during that time, she had no chemo or radiation and was already alive past the original projected time the doctors told her she'd live. But the remission didn't last. And then uh, August of, of 19, it came back. And uh, that time it came back with a vengeance. And uh, I could tell when it came back it was a different thing. And, uh, and it, it was stage, labeled stage four both times, but when it came back, you could see it zap the power out of her, and uh, she fought it a long time. But, you know, we had these two boys, my dad, my sister, mom, everybody uh, done what they could. But our little, our little town, like a lot of little towns, has drug problems, and it has issues like all, all towns do, I'm sure. But, Clay, this community was unbelievable, how they come together for us. When it came back the second time, I was still trying to work. The boys, multiple sports. Uh, my sister stayed with us quite a bit through the night so I could try to sleep at night. I don't know how she, where she was sleeping at ever, but day after day for months, longer than that, for over a year, we had dinner delivered here from just somebody else. I mean, just our, our community and my family's amazing. And uh, going through that and uh, watch, watching how it affected myself, my dad and sister, and my boys especially, that deer kind of started taking a back burner on me f- feeling pity for myself. It just, uh, what I thought, when I thought I was down and out and everything was gloomy, it was over a deer. And, but watching her fight for her life like that made me realize it was just a deer. But that's why I'm open about it, Clay. To say, in that, that second round of cancer, I was playing a lot of ball and stuff when I killed that deer. and I wasn't a drug-riddled alcoholic or anything, but I was raised in church. And I knew when I was doing right and when I was doing wrong. And, uh, Playing a lot of ball, drinking a lot of beer, being rowdy with kids at home, you know, and, and doing things that, that I shouldn't. Uh, my wife's faith never wavered one ounce. And as, as the man of the house, I, 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 sh- I should be the leader. And I wasn't. My wife was. And, and as she faded, I started realizing that's, that's what I'm going to have to be. But she, good. she passed the 25th of May of 2020 uh, after a, a terrible fight. 
And uh, the last thing she said to me was, I'm ready to go home. Yeah, it was uh, tough, but uh, the time I had with her, I really cherished. I can't thank you enough for listening to Bear Grease. I hope you've enjoyed and learned something from the Donnie Baker story. None of us are without fault, including Donnie, but he's one of us, an American woodsman and hunter, and a darn good one at that. Just the story we chose to tell of his overlap with the wild was one of his worst moments. After episode one, I was concerned that the world would make Donnie pay again for killing that buck. And I compensated for that by asking the listener to be sympathetic. And after the episode, Donnie reported back to me that he'd received almost 100% positive feedback, which I was really glad to hear. But most importantly, I think now he can fully just put all this behind him. I'm grateful for compelling stories, positive and negative. And I look forward to telling many more in 2024. It means the world to Brent and I that you guys listen to our podcasts. And I really look forward to talking to everybody on The Render next week about this episode too. And hey, I want to thank you all for the support of the launch of Steve, Ranella and I's audio original, The Long Hunters. So far, it has been a big success as it stood number one on the Apple audiobooks and reached number four on Audible, which is big for us. And hey... As another announcement, on March 9th, 2024, if you want to come say hi to Brent and I, all day we'll be at the Black Bear Bonanza in Bentonville, Arkansas. It's an incredible event, big time, big day. Google it and hope to see you there. Have a great week. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. Around New Year's, we get obsessed with how to change ourselves instead of just expanding on what we've already done right. Maybe you finally organized one part of your space and you want to tackle another. Or maybe you're taking your supplements every morning and now you actually want to eat breakfast. In the last year, I've been more diligent about going to the gym on a regimented schedule. And it's made a lot of difference in my life. Therapy helps you find your strengths so that you can ditch the extreme resolutions and make changes that really stick. Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com Grease today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com Grease. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.